Take your Bibles and turn with me to Judges, Judges chapter 21. Um, I have been already greeted with remarks of how interesting this message should be today, since there's only one verse that is listed as what we will be uh, looking at today. Uh, didn't have the heart at that time to share uh, that we're actually going to be covering from Genesis all the way through Revelation <laughs> Uh, today uh, as we look at this one particular verse and how it relates. Uh, but um, anyway, I, I was recently reminded uh, that there is a very thin line uh, between a long sermon and being held hostage. So I will try to uh, limit this to maybe just a long sermon uh, to the point where you don't feel like you're being held hostage. But uh, it is going to be quite a grand task. I'll go ahead and acknowledge that now. We uh, are looking forward to as a pa uh, preaching team now that Pastor Scott has began a series going through the book of Galatians. Uh, we are anticipating over the next uh, several weeks uh, at least uh, to uh, begin uh, looking at 1 Samuel and looking at uh, primarily uh, King David as you know from the very beginning even before David was uh, born. Uh, so what we're going to be looking at today, as indicated by, I'm not sure if Pastor Scott put the title of the sermon in here. Um, no. So today, the, the, the message uh, I have basically just titled, uh, A Time for the Days Without a King. The Days Without a King. Now, if you, if you think about the monarchies around the world, and particularly the one that we're closely related to, the, the, the British uh, royalty, uh, the, the royal family from that uh, that currently right now is in the transitional period of going from a king, a queen, who served her country for decades, uh, to now her son Charles is about to take uh, to be coronated, and there's a lot of plans going on, a lot of drama going on behind the scenes with the family and everything that's going on, and. From my perspective, this is one of those things that you're really, really interested in, or you really could not care less. Uh, I would, our home is represented by each of those, and I'll let you guess which one would fall into one of those categories. But you can't get away from it if you watch the news at all, because they will inevitably slip in something talking about what's going on. And, um, you know, it, again, you either, you either love it or you hate it. Uh, but it, but it's a reality of the world in which we live in. There are some countries that still have practicing monarchies, but very few of them today, if any, are, are practically governing the countries that, in which they serve. They're basically uh, just a, a, you know, an image uh, of something of days past. But, but most countries today are uh, governed by at least some sort of democracy, uh, some sort of uh, representative type of government, or they're just up, they're just being run by fascists across the country we, and around the world. We have examples of each of those. Uh, now we live life in this country, obviously without a king, uh, unless from time to time you may get confused in thinking that people who are on their own making decisions for us uh, would be maybe considering themselves as one. Uh, but we try not to talk too much about that because it becomes very discouraging. But we, when we think about our nation, we we were birth out of escape 
from tyranny that a king can bestow upon his people. So we have grown to, as a country, to, to love the liberty that comes from having not a king and not necessarily even a few people, but we claim that we have a government that is what? By the people, for the people, of the people, uh, that we have a constitution that should be guiding the direction of where we go, uh, that we should govern according to that. And so we, living in this culture, in Western culture, if I could be a little bit more broad than just the United States of America, we, we've grown accustomed to living independent to some degree because we believe to some extent that God has endowed us with rights as human beings created in his image. We would go a step further uh, than what the founding fathers of this country would have gone to. Uh, but we understand that God has provided for us a certain liberty and if we don't have that liberty, if we don't practice that liberty, it's, th it's there within us yearning to get out. We want to experience that liberty because uh, of, the, of just who we are by nature. But that doesn't mean that those countries that have a king or a queen or both uh, don't have some understanding of, of, of how things can still work, again, with just having you know a prop. Uh, someone that they uh, give honor to, uh, but that you know, but that there primarily is a government ruling us, and uh, we we appreciate that God has instituted government. Uh, he has given us that gift so that we can have some sort of order. Uh, many times that order is very polluted with sin, and then sometimes we experience the grace of God. Uh, to a greater degree where we can enjoy that for each of us. As we consider our one verse that is the focus today, uh, whether we have a king reigning over us in this world or not, we can at least relate because particularly if we're familiar with Scripture, we realize that there, was, uh, there were centuries that Israel had kings to rule over them. But when we look at Judges chapter 21, verse 25, it was prior to those days. And we come to the end of this book, which is to some extent the end of this period in which God is working with his people, in which we read in verse 25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now, these two phrases are put together in this verse for a particular reason. It's not because that you could always take these two phrases and always make them synonymous or make them in agreement with one another in every context because there are places where there are kings and people still do what is right in their own eyes. And there are, or there have been times in which there hasn't been a king over a land in which the people, for the most part, didn't do what was right in their own eyes. Again, living in a sinful world, we can't imagine how, how often that happened. But there have been times in which, generally speaking, the people would follow after proper morality encouraging the dignity of other people without having a king 
by name. So in considering what we're looking forward to in our study, thinking about the, the kingdom in which God will introduce to his people Israel, and going back further, back at the beginning, let's look at Genesis. If you will, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12. And we are at a, uh, we have been helped greatly, I should say, uh, by the equip hour in which Tim has uh, done a very good job in helping us understand uh, the first book and a half of the Bible. And hopefully it'll be the second, the first two books of the Bible. Not we're rushing Tim or anything like that. Uh, not that it would help if we did. Uh, but we uh, are looking forward to having you know that understanding and going forward. Uh, but let's begin back in Genesis chapter 12. Uh, with something where we're going to look at it, and you can follow this very simple outline that's on the back of the worship guide. Uh, but let's first of all look at this covenant. Before we talk about the king of Israel, before we talk about the king of us, we need to understand that it all began with a covenant. It's a covenant that God made with this man Abraham, or as we know it here in verse chapter 12, is Abram. Now the Lord in verse 1 said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to, a, to the land which I will show you and I will make you a great nation and will bless you and make your name great and so sh you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. If you look over in chapter 15, this is going to be like Bible drill. If those of you who grew up in church, and uh, whether it be in VBS or whether it be in Sunday school, you had Bible drills where you had to quickly find verses. This is going to seem like that today. So uh, just be prepared. Chapter 15, if you will look with me in verse 5. Uh, again, God speaking to Abraham. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And down in verse 7, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. Now, what are these verses that we just reviewed referring to? It's referring to a covenant that God made with Abraham. And this covenant, what I would like for us to just take note of quickly this morning, uh, it involved two specific things, at least. But two specific things that we can easily see in these verses that we looked at here. First of all, God told Abraham that he was going to make him the father of many people. He was going to give him a, a nation. There would be a group of people. And this group of people, the second thing would be, would have a land. So we have in this Abrahamic covenant a promise to Abraham that wasn't conditional on anything that Abraham did. It was something that God had declared that he was going to do through Abraham, even when Abraham and his wife Sarah had a hard time believing that at such an old age, they would be able to carry out this promise that God had given them, and that is for a people and for a land, okay? So that is the promise that God had made. Now, God made Abraham a patriarch. That's the word we would use for Abraham. He's, you know, we think about the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob that this is a patriarch, patriarchal system. Now, that word is a very dirty word in our culture today uh, because of all the things that it stands for and all the things that the culture in its sinfulness today 
stands against it, but that is the way God established it to be. God called Abraham to be the father of this group of people, and he gave them a land. But what God did not call Abraham to be is a king. Now, Abraham led his family into battle. Abraham provided for his people in certain degrees and providing, if you think about his nephew Lot, provided him land in which he could have his own. But Abraham wasn't a king. He wasn't called to be a king. He was called to be the father of these nations. But I want us to realize that God's program for a king started with Abraham and the covenant that he made with him because that is where the people that would have a king and the land in which this king would reign would begin, okay? So the second thing we need to look at is the conquest because in Exodus chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, we read that the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Remember, they had gone into Egypt because there was a time of famine and God used Abraham's descendant Joseph to, to be a leader in Egypt so that his family during this time of famine could go to Egypt and survive. And while they were in Egypt surviving, they began to thrive. They began to multiply, even to the point where the Pharaoh at this time, who did not know who Joseph was, didn't realize what the relationship of all these foreigners being in his country were, he got upset. He brought them into slavery. He put them into captivity. So in, if you will turn if you to Exodus chapter 3, it's been a while since I've been in a Bible drill myself. It's kind of confusing to me. Chapter 3 of Exodus. The Lord says to Moses, I have surely seen, in verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I'm aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the, Lord, from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel have come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. So here God is reminding Moses over 400 years later. Centuries later, after this covenant that God has made with Abraham to give him a people and a land, now, as they are in captivity in Egypt, God is saying, now I'm going to bring them, my people, that came through this covenant I made with Abraham into the land that I promised Abraham. And so we see uh, the, the exodus, if you will, and that is what we, we're looking at as the children of Israel have now, uh, during the equip hour, we have seen them come out of Egypt. They're making their way through the wilderness. They're receiving God's law. And in that law, if you will turn with me over to Deuteronomy chapter 17, God says to Moses, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, when you enter the land which the Lord gives you, or the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. 
You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, you sh or he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Here we see the first indication or instruction that God is giving to his people concerning a king. They're on their way. His people are on their way to the land which God has called them to live in and here God is giving them instructions through Moses of how this king should live. I mean, this king should be one of them. He should be an Israelite. He must not acquire many horses for himself. He should not acquire many wives for himself. He shall not uh, seek after riches for himself. He shall not, uh, but what he shall do, he shall make a copy of the law and keep that with him all the time so that he doesn't go from the right or to the left. See, God puts these temptations that will come to a king and say, these are the things that he needs to do without, but here's the one thing that is really important for him to do. Obey my law. Because when you do that, you'll be blessed. When you don't do that, you'll be cursed. How do we know that? Because we go over to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And looking at verse 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Now, what curses is he talking about? Well, he's just been spending the last several verses in front of this talking about all different types of things that will happen to them if they should go astray from God's law. But he goes on in verse 36, later on in the same chapter of Deuteronomy 28, 2836, in which Moses says, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation which neither you nor your fathers have known, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone. You shall become a horror, a proverb, and a taunt among all the people where the Lord drives you. So again, here's this stern warning that even though they do not have a king yet, God has given them instruction about what this king should be like and a word of very stern warning of what would happen if this king did not live according to the way God had called him to live. And what would happen to the nation should this happen? Now, in the midst of all of this, we understand that this is the word given to the people of Israel through Moses. Moses was a great leader. Moses was actually raised up in, in, the, in the courts of Pharaoh as a prince. God didn't call him to be a king. Moses was not a king, even though he was the one God used to provide instruction about how this king should come about. 
But during this period of conquest, not only the departure out of Egypt, going through the wilderness into the land of promise, we go over to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, if we look at verse 3 and following. God speaks and says, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea ford, the setting of the sun, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with you, with, been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession, the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that, it may be careful, that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God is reminding Joshua in verse 11, make sure you tell the officers, pass through the midst of the camp and command the people saying, prepare provisions for yourselves, for within three days you are to cross this Jordan, where? To go in and to possess the land which your Lord God, which Lord God, your God is giving you to possess. Again, we start all the way back in Genesis. God makes a covenant that you'll have a people and a land. They even go to a different nation to where they become slaves. God brings them out of that to do what? To bring this people that he has called into a land. He is promising Joshua, don't fear. I'm going to be with you wherever you go. Make sure you keep my commandments and you will possess this land just as I had promised it to your fathers. Now, Joshua was a great leader. We think about Joshua and Caleb leading the people into going through all the, as soon as they crossed over Jordan and going in through all these little areas and conquering from Jericho all the way through. Great leader. But he wasn't king. Now we still have the instruction. It, it wasn't that God forgotten what he told Moses to tell the people about this is what a king should be like. It's just Joshua wasn't a king. Now, we come to the book of Judges. And you're thinking, well, at this pace, we'll get to the book of Revelation maybe by the Christmas Eve service. But hopefully sometime before the equip hour this evening, we'll get finished with, with the message today. So in, Ju in Judges chapter 2, Joshua dies. And the, the writer of Judges uh, gives us an account of sort of how things are going to go here uh, over the next several decades. So if you will look with me in chapter 2, verse 11, Judges 2, 11, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and they bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. 
So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Asherah. Now, again, this is the same group of people that you will recall that I'm sure if you spend any time in church at all, you are familiar with when Joshua was getting to the end of his life. He said, listen, you need to decide right now who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? We're all familiar with that. And these people are the ones who said, yeah, we're with you. And as soon as Joshua was off the scene, look at those idols over there. Look at these groups of people over here. Let's be like them. And before you know it, we are describing these people as those who did evil in the sight of the Lord. The passage goes on from verse 14 of chapter 2. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he gave them into the hands of, and of plunderers who plundered them, and he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them, and so that they were severely distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they played the harlot after other gods and bowed themselves down to them. And then, then they turned aside quickly from the way in which their fathers had walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. They did not do as their fathers. When the Lord raised up the judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of, of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. But it came about when the judge died that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers as has not listened and has not listened to my voice, I will also no longer drive them out any of the nations which Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk in it as their fathers did or not. So the Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into, the, I'm sorry, he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. What we see here in that passage of scripture is a cycle. A cycle that we see repeated over and over and over again within the book of Judges, in which the people would go and do what was right in their own eyes. God's anger was aroused. He would allow his people to be subject to those nations that were left unconquered in the land and serve them to the point where they were being oppressed to where they would call out to God. And God had pity on them. And he would raise up a judge. And he would, this judge would be a leader. And this, this judge would oftentimes be a military leader in which they would defeat the enemies around them, deliver the people. They would observe some time of peace, sometimes as many as 20 or 30 years. And then they would go right back into the same old rut that they were in. And this cycle would repeat itself over and over again. So that when we come to Judges chapter 17, and if you have a cross-reference Bible, which simply means that you probably have a margin either on the edges or in the middle of your Bible, it has a lot of little letters and has a lot of little you know, words speaking about different passages of Scripture, that you will find this trail beginning in, Ju in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, where it says, And in those days there was no king in Israel, 
Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king of Israel. If you go down to chapter 19, verse 1. Now it came to pass, or it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. We're wrapping up this book of Judges by reminding ourselves through the Holy Spirit's inspiration. Oh, by the way, there was no king in Israel. Oh, before I tell you this story, let me remind you, there was no king in Israel. I just wanted to make sure you didn't forget. What's about to happen, happened when there was no king in Israel. So that when we get to what is our, basically the text is described for today, the last verse of the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now we have to be careful that we don't just simply make more of that just on the surface because there was a passage of scripture back in Deuteronomy. Moses was writing and it actually says that the people did what was right in their own eyes. But if you read the context of that passage, it's because there had not been given any law and they were not in a place where they could worship properly. They were going through the wilderness. They were setting this tent up. They were taking it down and they'd move. Then they would set it back up, take the tent down, then they would move. And finally, there would come a day in which there was a tabernacle. Once they got into the promised land, they could, they could at least put this tent. If you can put a tent permanently anywhere, that's what they did. And ultimately, there would be a temple in which they would be able to worship properly but there was a time even though they had instruction for Moses this is what you are going to do well they were still need to worship God in the meantime and the disaster is that was 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 leading people to worship however they saw fit because they were having to make do without the the, the right circumstances the right resources and the right place wasn't an excuse but we understand that they were doing things that you know as it seemed right to them because they just were in a bad situation however when we get to the end of the book of judges that's not the case because this is god's people living in the land that god had promised their fathers that they would live in yet they were still doing what was right in their own eyes And in those days, there was no king. Now, when we think about this passage, I'd like for you to keep in mind some other passages in Scripture that are just as terrifying when we consider the message. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, you may recall before the flood, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And there is embedded within the language an intentional repetition of thought. It wasn't about they were just passively thinking about. It wasn't that they just from time to time would go off into a bed. But it was constantly. Even when they didn't think they were thinking it, they were thinking about evil. And so God judged the world. Can you imagine a situation among 
humankind so bad that God would repent that he ever created this world and destroyed it by water, except for those who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. What a terrible description of individuals that they were, with every intention of the thoughts of their hearts, was only evil continually. But we also see in Isaiah chapter 5, woe to those who call good evil. Woe is a word that means you better watch out for the judgment that is coming. It's not, you don't want me to get out of this seat. You don't want me to say this again. You don't. This was woe, because if you are calling good evil, you are going to experience the wrath of God. For those who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, woe to them. There is no more horrible word than woe unto you. Consider Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now what's the horrible word that we find here? God gave these people over to a reprobate or to a moronic mind. You ever see behavior that just makes you scratch your head? How can anybody be so evil? How can anyone be so unaware of the truth? It's called the judgment of God. It's called God's wrath. Where it's been revealed on such. So we understand that when we consider Judges chapter 21, verse 25, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We realize that we live in a world that is not any different. Whether they have a king or a constitutional representative government, or a fascist governing them. It doesn't matter. We live in a world where people do what is right in their own eyes. It's because their life does not have a king. More specifically, their life does not have the king. I couldn't help but take the opportunity of the date of this message to incorporate what we're very familiar with during the Christmas season, talking about the birth of a king. So if you will, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1, verse 30. The angel said to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call and you and you and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him 
the throne of his father, David. Now just imagine that Pastor Tim and Pastor Charlie, myself, we've already gone through 1 Samuel all the way through David. We're going to get to that, but we're skipping over. And it's on that throne, the same one that Moses referred to back in Deuteronomy, the same one of the people and of the land that God had called Abraham out to possess. This child of Mary will be given the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. You don't need to turn, but in Matthew chapter 1, you're very, again, you're, or chapter 2 rather, verse 1, you're familiar. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For you saw a star when it, came, when it rose and have come to worship him. So there was prophecy that had made its way, perhaps maybe through the exile in which the children of Israel were in Babylon, in Persia. That the prophecies that had been given to those prophets about the coming Messiah made its way so that these three magi came to worship the one who was born king of the Jews. So we have in the birth of Christ this announcement that there will be a king that will rule forever. Now, if you will turn over to John chapter 18, not to throw a monkey wrench into this thing here, for we need to understand how this fits, but you may come to this portion, speaking of the arrest of Jesus standing before Pilate, and scratch your head thinking about, well, wait a minute. There was a covenant given to Abraham that there would be a people in the land. And during their conquest out of the Exodus into the promised land, the words given to Moses said that you have a king. And now we have this woman, Mary, this young lady who is going to give birth to someone who will be king of the Jews, even to the point where even people outside the nation of Israel are coming, having heard of this king of the Jews. And yet here we see in verse 33 of chapter 18, Pilate entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Well, if you'd asked Mary, well, the angel said that's who he was going to be. If you'd asked those magi, they would have said, Well, yeah, we came and we, we sought him out. We went to worship him. But Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate said, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation, the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my service would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Now Jesus says, you say and we have in our English Bibles a word provided for us that the language itself assumes, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have, been, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. 
So Jesus, while in one breath is saying, well, this is not my kingdom. It's not of this realm. But you're correct in saying that I'm a king. And those who are in my kingdom, what? They hear the truth. They believe it. There's a reigning over a group of people of this kingdom that I'm king over. So it begs the question. It's a scary one, particularly if I start throwing some charts up on the screen, which I'm not going to. So what is it? Is Jesus a spiritual king? And forgot about all this over here that he promised to Abraham and talked about through Moses and even through the, the kingdom of, of Israel? Or what's going on? Well, if you take the cues from the disciples in Acts chapter 1, if you'll quickly turn over there, verse 3, notice what Jesus does in these days after his resurrection and prior to his ascension. He, he showed himself, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and doing what? Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So Jesus spent his last days on earth after, after being raised from the dead, he spent 40 days showing himself to people. And then as he was showing himself, he was teaching about the kingdom of God. Now, what was the disciples' response to that? In verse 6, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? So after 40 days of being taught by the risen Savior about the kingdom, what's their first question that we have recorded in Scripture? So are you going to set your kingdom up now? Now, we get it through those three years of Jesus' ministry that they didn't understand that what he was doing was coming to die for the sins of his people. He wasn't here even though they carted him in or just trotted him into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey with, with the palm branches waving, Hosanna and Hosanna to the highest. They, you know, in their mind for three years, they thought that this was the king. But now they have understanding that goes beyond that. But they're still asking the question. Now notice what Jesus does. He does what every theology teacher and every good Bible college will do and say, guys, y'all completely missed it. For 40 days, I've been talking about the kingdom of God and the question you have for me, am I going to set it up now? He squelches it. No, he doesn't do that. He says, as for the time of that, it's not for you to know. So what do we have? We have a king. We have a king Jesus who was born to save us from our sins, who, whose realm, if you will, is not of this realm. And to those who obey him, those who hear him, those who know the truth via Christ is a part of this kingdom. But according to what we read in Scripture, there is coming a day when this king is coming back to rule over 
a kingdom over here. Now, what is this kingdom over here going to look like? We've got some indication. Again, we could throw up some colorful charts up here. We could say we know everything about it, but guess what? We don't. What we do know is he's coming back and he's going to reign as king on the throne of David and it won't end. Today, he's reigning. He is reigning. How do I know that? Because I go to Romans chapter 5, which if you will follow along with me, you'll find out how he is reigning. And I so appreciate the way the Lord works things together. When we were reading our uh, when I've got the worship guide this past week and saw what Pastor Scott, I'm assuming, I don't know if Tim, did you, Pastor Scott, somebody put this, the reading in here today from, from Colossians chapter 2, talking about the works of the flesh. Just notice from Romans chapter 5, the Word of God is just incredible. If you haven't picked up on that yet, just, just listen. Just listen. When we talk about verse 15, but the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace, the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. He's talking about Jesus Christ experiencing the sin for his people so that they could be justified by his righteousness. For if by the transgression, verse 17, of one, death reigned. If you reign, you're king. But if for by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. That is, if we are in Christ, who is reigning, if we are in him, death no longer reigns over us. Who does? Christ. So then, as one, so then, as though one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Down to verse twenty-one. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life. Through who? Through the King who reigns in truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. Do you understand these individuals, most of them, I realize we've got some really crazy Christmas carols out there that we should never ever sing to anyone, even if they're not believers. But there are some truly great Christmas hymns that when you read through them and understand what they're trying to teach us through the singing of these hymns, you will be rejoicing throughout the year about the reign of the King by grace, that brings to us what? Eternal life. And finally, in Revelation, some of you probably already know where I'm going here. 
Maybe you don't. But Revelation chapter 19. This is a picture of what eternal life is going to be like. John the Apostle was gifted with a vision of this that made him pass out. He lost consciousness because of the glory that he witnessed. After these things, he says, Revelation 19, verse 1, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, That's loud. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for his marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. He said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Worship God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Your word is indeed living and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to divide the soul from the spirit, the bone from the marrow. It's able to even discern between the thoughts of our hearts. His words of instruction, his word of correction, his word of reproof. They're true. So, Father, we pray that your word will go forth today. And as we speak to a world that has no king, as we speak to a world in which men do what is right, 
in their own eyes. Just as those of us who have been called by your grace can relate. We thank you that there is a king. We thank you that you have fulfilled your promise and that there is coming a day in which you will completely fulfill everything that you've promised to your people. But until that day, Father, I pray that we would understand the great work of your grace that has not only justified us, allowing us to stand before you righteous as Christ is righteous, but that we have a king that we are to serve, that we are to worship, not just for an hour and a half on Sunday mornings, but with our life, that death no longer reigns, sin no longer reigns in our life. May your grace enable us to resist the pull to go back to Egypt, to resist the pull to go back to slavery, to sin. And may we envelop ourselves into the service of our King, Jesus, the Righteous One, faithful and true. And as we celebrate His coming in the flesh, as we celebrate Him becoming like us so that we could be Your children, May we celebrate to where we are taking even the authority that he has as king to be witnesses throughout the world. But even as close as those who we will be spending this holiday season with. Father, may you be honored. May you receive all the glory. May you receive all of the praise. For it is to you, all of it is due. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.